I saw a friend post on Facebook about how she went to the store and they were out of sympathy cards. You know, there's a lot to be concerned about right now. To use a spiritual term, there are things to lament. But you also might feel an itch to respond, to, to go do something. So how do those two things relate to each other, right? Lament and action. And how can that lament be an engine for creativity? What if this moment is actually the dawn of something new? And what if you and I get to participate in it? How's it going? My name is Blaine Lay, and you're listening to Vivid, a podcast brought to you by RCLI. And our goal on the show is to help Christian leaders see clearly. Today on the show, I sit down with Donna Harris. She's done a lot of things, particularly in the startup space. And the episode you're about to hear is an edited down version. You can actually check out our YouTube channel if you want to see and hear the longer unedited version. It's about an hour. Some of the highlights on this episode, we talk about how lamenting and processing your grief before the Lord can actually be a real engine for creativity. We also talk about what it might look like for people of faith to go upstream to tackle complex, thorny challenges. She calls it active solving. There's just a couple of the highlights. Um, we get into a lot of things here as I think about startups and that mentality and challenges and leadership. So let's get into it. My name is Blaine Lay, and this is Vivid. So I wanted to start with a little bit more background on Donna. So here's a story. She grew up in Detroit. Her first job out of school was with a little company called General Motors. But after some time, she realized that she didn't want to be a little cog in a big machine. So she left. She realized she had this entrepreneurial knack, and it was from there that she started some companies in Detroit. She would leave Detroit and move to Washington, D.C., where she worked in public affairs to really understand the nuts and bolts of government. And then she went into the startup space. So she was a managing director of Startup America Partnership. She was also the co-founder and managing partner of 1776, which is the largest startup incubator in the East Coast. At the time, there was a lot of buzz. There were global leaders dropping in. Donna is currently at Builders and Backers, where she just spends a lot of time trying to figure out why some places thrive and why others don't. And she does it with an eye for how to revive that entrepreneurial spirit that's at the center of local communities. But we started our conversation talking about this idea of lament and creativity. So here we go. As you think about this idea of lament, um, and then also how that ties to what we then go do with it, I wonder if you could just unpack how you think about lament. How do you define it? Um, you know, what do you see in scripture and how does that shape how we think about it? Yeah, it's such a great question. I mean, particularly as people who are entrepreneurs and investors, our, our, our tendency, our natural gifting is to be people of action. Um, and we want to go see, see a problem, solve a problem. There's a hill, let's go take it. And, in our, when we look at some of these really uncomfortable, difficult problems around poverty and homelessness and drug addiction and some of the, the very real things that are on the front lines of our communities, 
we want to make meaning out of them, right? We want to go right to meaning making. And as entrepreneurs, the way we make meaning is we go fix it oftentimes. And we skip over a fundamental step in this process, which is we have to, we have to bring our lament over that brokenness to God. And the, there are example after example after example in scripture where if you look at how do you actually hear the voice of God and move in the way God wants us to move to meet that brokenness, hmm. we, if we skip lament, we skip a vital, not only act of faith, but we skip over conversation with God and partnering with God in ways that, that we could, if we take, I mean, these are, these are problems to cry out about. These are problems that are heartbreaking problems. And to, to bring that anguish to God in faith, in trust, and to be honest with him about the really difficult questions they bring up. How, how can this thing exist? in a world where you are a loving God. How does this align with scripture? Why is that happening? Because it doesn't line up for me or I struggle with how to process it or there's these emotions around it. Um, when we are willing to do that, not only bring our own things that we are lamenting over, but when we sit and talk to our neighbors about the brokenness and bring it to God, it's a tremendous act of faith and it opens up a partnership and a conversation with him where he would show us answers and solutions in ways that we might miss in sort of our angst to go do something. And in particularly in today's society with distractions and social media and we're busy all the time and we don't, the discipline of getting quiet and the willingness to take these really uncomfortable questions, trust and love and, faith and omnipotence to him. Um, it, it's not a discipline that a lot of us have learned to, to do, um, but it's very powerful because then you can actually meet the brokenness in ways that we wouldn't necessarily have done in the past and, and, and done in, if we didn't do that. Yeah. And I, I feel like in the U S um, we either, well, I'll speak personally. I either want to check out and go watch Netflix and like, Oh my gosh, that seems like a big thing and I can't tackle it. So I'm going to either sort of check out or like we very quickly move to action and like, I'm going to go do some stuff to like alleviate the like anxiety that I feel. And I think what you're saying is hold on, we need to take a breath and like sit and be with the problem and actually, um, but, but I mean, I think you can err on one side where you could sit in a lament too long and almost look in the mirror and have your head in your hands and not move to some kind of action. And you said in other places that when we do that, where we lament, but we don't um, work it out with God and ask what we may then go do, then we're implicitly saying that evil has a place here. And that's not right either. That's right. I mean, one of the things that entrepreneurs that is the beautiful part about the way entrepreneurship has evolved over the last decade. You know, we, we, we've got this concept of having a hypothesis and going and testing the hypothesis and taking action around a hypothesis. And what you start with as your assumption is really important. So if we're assuming I can't do anything about that, so I'm going to go solve this thing I can, we're inherently starting with the assumption that evil belongs evil is not something we could attack, right? But 
but if we're willing to start with the hypothesis that God hates the brokenness as much as we hate the brokenness, maybe more. Hmm. And we, we have to be honest about that with him, about our doubts, about our fears, about the things that even feel maybe petty and small. Like God, God already knows we feel those things. Yeah. If we're not bringing them to him in honest conversation, there's a, there's a missing element of faith there that says I can bring these unanswered questions to him and I might not get answers in the moment, but I am bringing it in faith and in trust. And, and I'm not willing to just accept that this brokenness belongs here. I want to be a partner with God in solving the brokenness and, and not just putting a salve on the symptoms of the brokenness. I want to go solve it, right? When I, I was in Haiti and I saw this little boy living in the trash dump in City Soleil outside of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And yeah, I gave him every dollar I had in my pocket and I gave him my shoes. But I profoundly wanted to fix the poverty that caused him to have to live in the garbage dump in the first place. And it, it still, decades later, is something that I feel broken over. I lament over um, because in that moment in my, you know, early twenties, I, I didn't have a clue as to why this, you know, probably seven-year-old was living in a garbage dump. And I had very real questions for God around that. And it's, it's disingenuous of me as a person of faith, not to bring those questions to him and not to believe that he can, he can meet me in those questions. Yeah. And I think, I'm kind of echoing back and thinking about my own story, but for each of us, I think there's a lingering question as we lament to sit with that. And as we think about like, what, what's the response for me personally, there's almost a question, a related question. That's um, like, what is mine to do? Cause you could have moved to Haiti and like worked on the front lines and, but because of how you're wired and how you're gifted and you're in the experiences that you've had since then, it hasn't worked out that way, but that the, um, the way that seeing that problem has shaped you has enabled you in, in sort of an indirect way based on how God's wired you to respond. Mm -hmm. But you know, it, in your twenties, you could have said, Oh, here's a problem. I got to go pack all my stuff and move without actually like taking it before the Lord and wrestling. And so I think. And that was actually part of, of what I lamented, right? So this problem exists that is heartbreaking. Yeah. I live in this wealthy nation. I'm going to go back to my cushy job. I was mm -hmm. the number two person at a venture backed startup that was, you know, all that in a bag of chips at the moment. And right. that I think more than anything broke me is that I wanted to be a part of solving it. And I felt like God was saying no. Hmm. And I didn't understand that. Right. Why weren't, why weren't you calling me to be a missionary? Why weren't you calling me to go be, you know, the person that's actually running the NGO on the ground or the pastor's right. life who's in, you know, fixing the problem. And, and, you know, honestly lamenting over even the reaction to some degree of my friends that were of faith as well. Um, in that, you know, we tend to see people being called, called in quotes, um, as the pastors, the preachers, the teachers. Right. You know. But I see I am every bit as called as a person who is wired as an entrepreneur 
And I can now look back over the last couple of decades and see God met me in that moment and he's wired me to want to go solve the root of that problem, not just in Haiti, everywhere, because it's the same roots that are driving poverty other places too. And by the way, entrepreneurs can play a role, a huge role, especially in this moment in time with technology and the digital era and networks and bottom-up solving. God put me in this exact moment, wired me exactly this way, was calling me exactly to do that thing. But had I not brought that to him, I would walk away angry and bitter Mm -hmm. that I see this problem. We don't have a God who loves. I'm not being called to fix it. And so let me just, you know, show up at church on Sunday, but not really have that honest conversation with him. Mm -hmm. It's hard. It's heartbreaking. It's face on the floor in tears, crying out and not understanding, but still being willing to trust him. Yeah. Even though he's not answering exactly the way I think he should answer. It turns out he had a plan all along. Hmm. Yeah. And I think the, you're speaking to this like vocational um, misconception. I think we often have where as people of faith and Christ followers, I think it's easy to implicitly feel like, Oh, if you're sort of like, if you're at the top of the pyramid, you're a pastor or a missionary. And then if you're like the rung below that is like, you're a nurse or a teacher. Right. And then below that, it's like, you're a banker or a lawyer. I'm like, ah, you, you know, you're here. But you can be the lawyer for the church. Right. 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 But I think you're also speaking towards um, this idea of, of what you call passive service. Um, an act of solving where passive service is almost like uh, you're serving soup at the coop at the soup kitchen. Right. And the act of solving is we are now working on food insecurity and going upstream. Could you just unpack th- those two ideas and how you think about that? Cause I think it's been just really informative for me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's sort of this very simple concept that when you see it, you're like, of course, like that's, it's not complicated. But because we don't approach the world this way, we don't, we don't think about it this way. So if you sort of imagine a four quadrant matrix where we have, you know, long one axis, you have active and passive. And on the other axis, axis you have serving and solving. And if we think about, you know, volunteering, we think about missions, we think about our work that most of us do through our churches, it, it falls in that sort of lower left serving passive serving. So, you know, the, the the church leaders, the elders go decide we're going to meet need X, right? We're going to go feed the homeless. We're going to put together care packages for kids in schools. We're going to write out letters to the homebound elderly in the COVID crisis. Mm -hmm. And then they put out the call and I go, yes, I'm happy to do that. And And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. thing, Because those things are needed. Absolutely. Hands down. You know, we can see example after example where, where Christ tells us to, to serve the brokenhearted, to be there in that moment of need. Um, but what's fascinating is that when we think about those needs, why do we have people who don't have jobs? Why do we have people who can't feed themselves, who don't have food to eat? While we are feeding them, let's find out why mm-hmm. and let's see what we can do about it. And so if we think about the world that I come from, the sort of secular entrepreneurial world that is the sort of polar opposite end of this four quadrant, which is the sort of active solving. Why does poverty exist? Let's go to discovery. 
let's unpack it to its roots. Let's be entrepreneurial. Let's figure out what solutions we can put in place to be able to tackle it. What was fascinating is that as I met people in this journey and talked about the brokenness in our community, turned out we were all on team solve the brokenness. Right. We were just coming at it from two different opposite ends of this, this quadrant. Um, and as we started thinking about, well, let's reimagine this. What are all the ways we try to tackle the brokenness? It turns out there's a whole lot of different roles we play. Mm-hmm. We're volunteers, we're donors, we're advocates, we're entrepreneurs, we're investors, we're helpers. Right? There's, there's a whole variety of roles and they all fall into sort of one of the four boxes of active, passive, serving, and solving. So we've been through Builders and Backers reimagining what happens if we actually eliminate the sort of walls between serving and solving, and we actually look at it through the lens of brokenness, right? And so let's understand the brokenness, let's lament the brokenness, and then let's go to the meaning-making part of this, which is let's meet the need and let's solve the problem. Hmm. This can be a spectrum of things that work together. And by the way, when we think about the giftings that we as the people of Christ have, one of us is the eye, another is the hand, someone's the foot, right? We are gifted in all these various roles from donor and investor to entrepreneur, to volunteer, to missionary, to pastor, to teacher. They're all necessary and they all fit within this matrix of serving and solving being unified. Um, and so part of what we're on a mission to do is to help particularly people of faith um, and, and churches and church leaders to have tools to be able to, to, to melt these things together and to be able to take this passion for, for serving and now expand our horizon to say, okay, what else in this sort of bigger landscape could we, could we begin to do and begin to solve um, in addition to the serving that we're doing? To say it another way, it's 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 um it's not either or it's both and. Totally. I think I think even for those of us that I'm probably a little more wired to be more of the solver, just because of like I live in my head and I'm very curious and I want to think about um, how things fit together. But it's easy to not actually get out and have like boots on the ground and actually be face to face. And it, you don't want to be a technocrat in the ivory tower just looking at a PowerPoint slide when you're trying to solve some of this stuff, right? Well, totally. And that's why they belong together. Because if you see what happens with, you know, sort of the Silicon Valley elite, whatever view, right. we don't get close enough to the problem yeah. to understand the problem and to, to sit with the people who are incurring and living the problem every day. And we come up with solutions that aren't actually solutions, right? And that's where this concept of lament is so important because to lament, you've got to take a magnifying glass to this right. problem. You've got to sit with the person who is actually feeling the brokenness and you have to be uncomfortable and listen to why and how and how they feel about it. That changes, when you do that, that changes your perspective on what a solution might be. And so, you know, we come from sort of way up high to really, really up close to the problem and a very different lens on what a solution might be. Yeah. And I think the poverty, like the poverty question, I think is particularly challenging because if the solvers, um, I don't think they know a lot of poor people, right? Like it's usually you're looking at demographic data in a certain locality and you're thinking about what we have, but it's like, well, are we actually talking to folks in public housing, uh, you know, on public assistance? And maybe they are, but, um, 
I just, that's a question mark that I always have as we think about solutions. Yeah. You know, this, we, we worked with a major corporation who was very interested in sort of automation is taking jobs. What could be done about that? What are mm. the potential solutions to that? And we made them, their top leaders come in and actually spend time in community with this process, which forced them to sort of get really close to the issues in the community. And what they learned was automation is just, you know, the problem of the day piling onto uh, decades mm -hmm. of other challenges. And so, yes, we need to solve that problem, but it's actually more complicated for a whole bunch of reasons that they didn't understand. And they, their takeaway was we're in communities, but we're not actually in mm. communities. Right. 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 It's a very different lens when you actually get up close and you're at a table talking with that person who actually you know, can't get a job for all these reasons, one of which is automation, but there's a whole bunch of other complicated stuff there. Yeah. I want to ask you, so my question is, how do you think change happens? So this is, I'll ask it in a simple way, but I think the answer is probably a little more complicated. So, um, so how does change happen? Uh, option one is top down. And I asked this as a guy that one, one thing that we do is we have a leadership program. So top down is basically, we just need to find the best and the brightest, invest in them, um, you know, maybe elect them to office or get them to become the CEO of a big company. Like that's option one. Option two is bottom up, which is more of a grassroots organizing. Um, let's demand change from the top, from the bottom. And then option C is, or option three, I don't know if I'm doing numbers or <laughs> letters, but the third option is something different that is neither of those. Like, how do you think about the way, the nature of that change happens? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, actually, I'm definitely an option C slash three. Um, so I, I That's correct. Correct. Oh, a, thousand, a thousand points to you. <laughs> um, had you asked me that question a couple of years ago, I would have said, absolutely, bottom up, bottom up is the way to do it. Um, what I have learned from my research and on the ground testing and experimenting with this is it, it isn't actually bottom up um, in that somehow it just sort of organically bubbles up from thousands of little flowers blooming. Um, we do need the thousands of flowers blooming, but it turns out that they need to be aimed at mm. something. Um, and there is a force that does aim that. Um, it is a, often an organizing force. Um, typically, it's a small group of people who are sort of heavily influential in their community, though not necessarily the designated leaders in their communities. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that makes it not top down either, right? It's not the the mayor is the decider and puts the plan together and then starts handing out the assignments to people. Right. Um, there's a, there's a, has to be a view of the future can be better than the past. And here is our thesis around what we imagine that will look like. Let's share that broadly. We all have a common vision and now we are building toward something. Um, but it does take that sort of core group of people as leaders and inspirers and motivators and vision casters um, to, to aim the efforts of the bottom-up work. And it's the reason that originally we were going to be builders and now we're builders and backers because it takes, it takes all of that. Um, 
but within a community, you know, ironically, this is how the Startup America movement happened across the country was neither you know, thousands and thousands of people nor the mayors. It was entrepreneurial leaders, people like you and me in our hometowns saying, my community can do a better job of supporting entrepreneurs. I want to be a part of making that happen. I have ideas. I'm going to experiment. I will share my experiments with everyone else. I'll get the benefit of them sharing as well. And together we will figure out what seems to work and we'll do more of it and we'll do it at scale because we're all doing it in our own communities. And that's the model that is unfolding as we watch the entrepreneurial response to the coronavirus crisis of people mobilizing. You know, they're not just randomly doing stuff. Everybody heard that we're, we have a PPE problem People are mobilizing across the country to go find a whole bunch of different ways to get personal protective equipment into the hands of first responders. That's an aimed bottom-up response. Hmm. Even the nature of leadership, I think there was like this old, like the model in the 20th century was, was you know, the sage on the stage from top that pushes change down. And so going back to my question, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Either top down or bottom up assumes that it's linear in one way. And I think it's like you use this term ecosystem that I do think that it's more like a web and how can you invest in the nodes, connect the nodes. So I think leadership then is more contextual than it is. I need to get the right title or be elected to office. It's where do I find myself? Um, and I've just been thinking a lot about the role of problem identification and just creating purpose as a leader. And you could, you could do that on city council, but you could also do that if you're working, you know, in hospice care of saying, what's the problem we're trying to solve? Why is it the right problem for us right now? And then articulating like why it's worth solving and why it matters. And then, you know, as you think about like your approach and how do I go? Yeah. And then are you, are we able to find the data that we need, whether it's quantitative data or qualitative to say, if we're testing a couple of approaches, how do we make sure that we're responding to what the data is telling us and mm-hmm. leading from there? I just think that's, yeah, anyways, because you're, yeah, you're but it's super important, right? Because we, we tend to operate from this sort of, I have an opinion, you have an opinion and we argue about our opinions, but if you take a page out of entrepreneurship, how would entrepreneurship, I mean, an entrepreneur, a startup is nothing but a bunch of assumptions. And mm-hmm. the job of a of the startup leader is to unpack those assumptions and figure out which ones are true and which ones aren't true and then decide what to do about those things. And if we treat problem solving in our communities the same way, right, you and I are both on team reduce poverty. Mm-hmm. We might have different hypotheses about how we do that. We can test both of those hypotheses. Right. And we can still be on the same team because we're running tests and experiments and we're talking about the conclusions of those things and what we're learning from, right? We can A, B test this mm-hmm. um, and we can test it on small scale and then continually, you know, share promising practices across the country, learn from what else other people are doing. Um, but, but getting to a place where we can deprioritize party and partisanship and prioritize problems, hypotheses, tests, and really seeing ourselves as on the same team because we care about solving the problem. And I think that's the beauty of the approach that you're talking about is that it de-emphasizes the the left, right, progressive, conservative 
mm-hmm. and it it sort of sort of blurs the lines because it's like well we're we're trying to solve this problem let's figure out the way, right way to do it and I think the more and there might be more than one right way right um, and what's what works in you know at a in a neighborhood in Richmond may be different in a neighborhood in Milwaukee right and so I think it, it seems like the more localized the challenge the less um, sort of the the political matters not that it doesn't matter but um, I think you're right. able to be more nimble. It matters. It matters because the talking heads try to tell us it matters. But the reality is, if you sit in a place like you know Boone, North Carolina, where every large employer has left, there isn't enough entrepreneurship to create jobs for people, and there is the very real issue that there just aren't not jobs. But what do we what do we do about that? How do we how do we how do we solve that problem? Like I care about that problem. You care about that problem. We all care about that problem because there's a whole town full of people who can't even meet the fundamental like base of Maslow's hierarchy of needs of being right. able to have, you know, food and shelter. Um, so let's go experiment what that looks like. And by the way, we're living in this digital economy where maybe the jobs don't have to physically be in a place like Boone for you to be in Boone and have the job. And what can we do about that? And what are some creative ways that we can solve that problem? Um, and we're just, we're spending way too much time arguing about politics instead of saying, well, what actually, what ideas could we try? Let's go try some right. things. Let's go work with the folks in the community to get them to try some things. Let's teach them about this concept of buildership and, and, and what ideas did they have that we could help nurture to help solve that problem. Hey, it's Blaine, the narrator again. I'm going to fast forward a little bit later in our interview. I had a question for Donna about sort of the factors at play that keep cities or localities from becoming the fullness of what they were meant to be. So she looked at a bunch of stuff. She did a lot of research in this area, looking at history, politics, sociology, tech, AI, all of these factors, and it gets complicated pretty quickly. To begin to solve that, you've got to get down to the most elemental levels. And by the way, it's going to take a lot of different solutions coming together because the roots are complicated. But as someone of faith, what became clear as sort of the ultimate root of everything is that, in essence, our entire system is built on selfishness. Hmm. We have a system that is built on an obligation to succeed, um, sort of me versus we, the way capitalism has evolved, sort of if, if you look at every aspect of this brokenness cycle, um, we, we basically institutionalized selfishness hmm. into a whole lot of aspects of society. And so if we deal with that on a secular basis, you know, I, I begin tackling the discrete issues. But as a person of faith, we have to ask ourselves, what do we do about the inherent selfishness that is underneath it that's a call to us as christians not just to solve the problem but to share the gospel and to actually see selfishness as a changeable condition right carnegie gospel well sort of assumed selfishness was something that was not necessarily solvable or easily solvable and so our entire system has been structured on this idea that you go and you make money you go and you succeed and we use philanthropy to give back, and that's how we sort of write the inequality. But if we look at the actual gospel of wealth, um, it's a very different lens 
on selfishness and selfishness is changeable because we have hearts that can turn towards Christ and Christ can change us and change our perspective on things. And by the way, how he calls us to act redemptively is very different than the way the world wants us to act and the way society is structured. And by the way, if we could say we are actually called to then use our giftings as entrepreneurs, as creators, as investors, as people in every other box of the sort of four quadrant serving and solving, we could go do that at scale across the country, right? Because we're in the halls of Congress. We're in all the industries. We're creating businesses in every market. We have an unprecedented amount of capital that we can be investing in things. We can be investing in things and building things that don't actually start with selfishness at the root. And we could be sharing the gospel with people to help them move towards a place of unselfishness. Um, and so the, the, the tension of builders and backers is it is a widespread movement around making sure we're solving the brokenness and we're actually tackling this in ways that take advantage of what's going on in the digital economy. But it is also why, as a person of faith, I have conversations like this um, because we have anybody should be the tip of the spear on this stuff because we've right. actually got the solution to the ultimate root of all of this. Right. And I think that as followers of Christ, the core of that is a recognition that I am selfish and I need help from the outside. So I think as this kind of gets back to the lament, but I think as each of us wrestle with our own brokenness and selfishness, like my tendency just to want to be oriented around Blaine and as Christ unwinds that and um, like liberates me from myself, mm-hmm. then then only then can I be outwardly focused. Like right. I think about the uh, this idea that you can either be think of yourself too highly or think of yourself too lowly, but actually both of those are still really about you. If you're like I'm great or like oh woe is me, but mm-hmm. I think the liberation that um, is is freeing is when you're just thinking yourself less. When I'm um, working on a problem that draws me into it, I'm less in my own world and in my head. I'm just like, oh, this is this is a problem worth solving, and I'm actually really interested. And I'm meeting people that in the solving, um, I, I experience Christ in a different way. Does that make sense? That do- it does totally make sense. And if we think about, you know, the devil's greatest weapon today isn't trying to get us not to believe. It's even even he believes. In- in God, it is to get us distracted yes. from that. And there's no greater way to distract you than to keep you focused on yourself, right? But if we actually do let go of ourselves, allow Christ to be our lead, have it be about him and not us, and we embrace this concept of serving and solving, and we allow all of our gifts to come forward, and how many of us are there in this country, in this world, you think about the impact that that could have, but we're not having that impact because we are still accepting of this sense of not acknowledging that the system, the entire system is sitting on top of this Hmm. fundamental question of self and selfishness. And I, I think it's the greatest lie of our generation right now is the sense of, you know, we've sort of accepted that this is the system and how do I go, serve the symptoms of the system or how do I go solve a piece of the system when we need to interrupt the entire system. Mm. And we do that by prioritizing Christ instead of self and letting him do that through us because in our own human nature, we're selfish people. 
-hmm. And we need the Holy Spirit to come in and help us make different decisions and then let that spill over in our spheres of influence. So we've been talking a lot about that which is broken and how we can build. And in American history, pre-coronavirus, there, you know, there were a lot of just gaps in the social fabric. And then we have this once-in-a-lifetime pandemic that's happening right now. And so from where you sit vocationally and as a Christ follower, what gives you hope right now? You know, it's fascinating. We're at, we're at this moment, this crisis is happening at a really unique moment in time where technology allows us to do this kind of thing. We're Zooming and being able to connect across the miles. We're in a place where people don't trust institutions mm-hmm. that we, we used to. Um, the change that the digital era was already bringing of shifting from institutions to networks, um, sort of deinstitutionalizing the world because you and I can see a problem and we don't need an anointed authority to go solve it. Um, this crisis is accelerating that in really phenomenal ways. Right? If you just look at the calls to action around the personal protective equipment, we have a, we've created a table on the Builders and Backers website where we're just documenting examples of this happening. And there are hundreds and hundreds of them of individuals going, this problem needs to be solved. I don't see anyone solving it. I'm going to step up. Here's my thing. Let's go do it. And it's not just entrepreneurs, it's people like my, my mom, right? And my, my next door neighbor. And I think one of the things that we will see out of this is our country learns how to become again, a country of builders. Hmm. And we forgot how to do that because we've lived in an industrial society where the institution does the doing and we passively do what we're asked to do in our little part of the world. And we're having an igniting of an imagination Hmm. as a country that actually I can go solve these things. I'm going to read something that you wrote. So you wrote a post about this idea that there's this big shock and we'll, we'll post it up, but there was a passage that I think speaks to what you're talking about. You write the institutions we count on to govern, deliver healthcare and provide some semblance of economic security are showing their cracks. We've become accustomed to having big governments and big organizations in the captain's seat charting the course and telling us what we do to get to safety. Now, we're seeing instructions that don't come, guidance that isn't clear, officials who contradict themselves, contradict each other, and in some cases, information that's just flat out wrong. From the sidelines, we see the generals in chaos, both of their making and in being at the mercy of others' decisions. And a lot of us are starting to realize that the sidelines might not be where we belong. That's right. That's beautifully put. In this moment, we have this thing called technology that allows us not to be on the sidelines. Yeah. And this thing called buildership where we can go create things in new and innovative and creative ways that wouldn't have been possible even five or 10 years ago. This crisis is happening at a very, very unique moment in time. Yeah. And if we step up, we can actually be a nation that comes together by building together. Yeah. Donna Harris, thank you. So appreciate your time today. Just your, your thinking and your heart. Um, I think it's just a really helpful voice in the moment we find ourselves in. And it's 
yeah, there's a lot to lament right now, but I think there is cause for hope as well. So agreed. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. For more on what Donna's up to, you can visit buildersandbackers.org. They're running a campaign right now called the Be a Neighbor campaign, which basically uses a technology platform to connect people in need with those that can help. If you want to check out the extended version of my interview with Donna, you can visit RCLI's YouTube channel. Speaking of RCLI, we are now accepting applications for our leadership program. So if you're interested in applying or you know someone that may be, Check out more information on our website. That's rcliweb.org. And lastly, uh, you know, we want to hear from you. What do we do? We set up a voicemail and we want you to give us a call, dear listener, friend. Um, We want to hear two things, a reflection and a response. So first, the reflection, that could be a lament, uh, something you're learning, something you're sitting with. You know, what, what are you reflecting on these days? So that's the first one. And the second is the response. So tell us something interesting that you or maybe someone else is doing to respond in this moment. What are those little nuggets of action that are happening? So we want to hear both of those. Uh, Again, reflection and response. You can call us at 804-657-RCLI. Try to keep it short if you can. Tell us your name, a reflection, and a response. We may use it on a future episode here. Again, that number is 804-657-RCLI. We hope to hear from you soon. Thanks so much for listening.